Well, before you grab a seat, let's go ahead and stay standing to honor the reading of God's Word. Our passage today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. Here's what it says. Do you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols and to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. You all may be seated. Well, welcome. It's good to have you here at Valley Community Church today. Welcome to all of you who are in the family room upstairs. Hope all is well with you, and um, thank you for all of those who are joining us online, real time, or or after the fact. Glad to have you worship with us. My name is Heath, one of the pastors here. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet, I hope we do get the chance to meet soon. In fact, after this service, um, at 12.15 or so, we have what's called a connection point. And what we're going to be doing is out in the gathering place, just outside and around there. Um, I'll be there and a few other members of staff, and uh, we, we hope to get to know some people, some of you who are visitors or guests, or maybe you've been here a while, and we haven't had a chance to meet, so I'll come by. If you have questions, we'd love to be able to uh, respond to those. And we are in our second week in a new series called As in Heaven, where we are looking at the letter of 1 Thessalonians, which was written by Paul. And so um, let's just get into it straight away. It's been said that imitation is the the, um, the sincerest form of flattery. So that being said, we want to be like what we find beautiful. We want to become like what we admire. We want to be like the things that we like. And it seems that as human beings, we are wired to imitate in order to grow, in order to learn in order to become something other than we are, something more than we are. And this deeply embedded impulse has everything to do with what we've been talking about for a while. It's everything to do with apprenticeship. Imitation is crucial to apprenticeship to Jesus. And imitation is crucial to becoming truly human. And we get a glimpse of what we'll call authentic imitation here in the life of Paul, here in the book of 1 Thessalonians, the New Testament. Now, as we started last week, we did some of the backstory on this, which is really important because, as we said last week, every letter worth its salt has some kind of story to it, some kind of drama that's just behind it. It's grounded in some place, some event, some Thing, some hope or some hurt. And this is certainly the case with First Thessalonians, the letter again written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Thessalonica. 
But you know, this past week as I was preparing uh, for this sermon, thinking about the backstory to this letter, it occurred to me, um, for the first time ever, it occurred to me that when the Apostle Paul rolled into the city of Thessalonica, when he arrived for the first time, he was in a rough shape. More likely than not, he was badly bloodied and bruised. To some degree, he was carrying within his body the marks of hate, the imprints of violence that he received in the city of Philippi, just 96 miles away. And it seems important to realize that Paul did not roll into town with this glamorous victory parade with an impressive posse, right, glittering with the common signs of success drawing everyone to him because they wanted to be just like him. He and his crew were not an advertisement for the good life as the Thessalonians knew it. Paul and company did not strut into town. They limped into town. Why? Well, let's rewind just here for a little bit. So before he was in Thessalonica, Paul says that Timothy were preaching in the city of Philippi. Now, Last week we looked at the maps. Let's go ahead and pull the map up so you can kind of get a feel for where we're talking about. This is from the second missionary journey, big missionary journey. Um, basically, they moved from east to west, left from Troas, eventually headed to Philippi, on to Thessalonica, down to Berea, Athens, and then Corinth. So east to west, and then down, down south. Now, the gospel came to the city of Philippi. And the gospel of King Jesus created a stir, liberating people from their sin and slavery, and was working to subvert the broken, corrupt systems at play. And this upset quite a few people. So after some shady people provoked a riot, agitated a mob, and incited hate, Paul and Silas were arrested quite forcefully. Their clothes were, were violently ripped from them. They were ashamed publicly, and then they were tortured, beaten with rods. They were caned. This is not, not a light whacking and then off to your cell you go. This was a brutal beating that hemorrhaged the body, torso, and limbs. For this kind of thing, the rods are usually made of birch wood because they had an unusual combination of being rigid enough and flexible enough to implement maximum pain, and the Roman soldiers would beat victims mercilessly all over their entire body. Sometimes they would even bind them, turn them upside down, just to beat their feet to pieces and break the bones of their feet. Romans are torture artists. They were experts in pain, agony, connoisseurs, so to speak. Well, Paul and Silas were then locked shackles in a cold cell, a cell that would soon ring out with hymns and praises of joy because of the joyous people within. A cell that was opened by an earthquake, a divine jailbreak, so to speak, so that the company could get out of Dodge. But before that happened, before they left the town, Paul and Silas actually ministered to their guard there that he too might come to know Jesus and his whole family was actually converted. That said, think on it though for a moment. 
It would have taken weeks for wounds inflicted by canes to disappear, wouldn't it? It would have taken weeks for thick scabs to make way to new skin. It would have taken weeks for deep purple bruises to fade to that gray and yellow of bruise. It would have taken weeks for any broken or bruised bone to heal. And Thessalonica is just a little over 96 miles. I think it's like 96.2 miles from Philippi via the main highway, the Ignatian Road. That said, if you think about that, it takes about 25 hours or so at a steady walking pace to walk about 100 miles. Or, you know, 33 hours or so if you're walking really slowly, which I imagine they were after that. Think about that. All this to say, when Paul and Silas come to Thessalonica and are preaching King Jesus, they did so bearing the wounds of good news. They came as suffering servants displaying a spirit of joy. Suffering servants displaying a spirit of joy. And here they were in another antagonistic environment, preaching the same good news that had gotten them beaten black and blue. This church planning team was well acquainted with suffering, well acquainted with grief. And here they were in a new town that was hostile to their message as well. Yet they were showing the love of Christ with the spirit of joy. So with that backstory, let's launch into our verses, and that will really help us understand what Paul is saying. So let's pick up at verse 5, in the middle of verse 5, because we did the first half of verse 5 last week. Here's what it says. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us. Now the Lord, for you receive the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You know what kind of men we prove to be, says Paul. What kind of men were they? What did the Thessalonians see? What had they witnessed? Well, they had seen men with another worldly peace with a supernatural joy who lose love and compassion for other people, even though they themselves were recently assaulted and their bodies still smarted. They had seen those who offered themselves at great cost for the good of others. They had seen those who exhibited Christ-likeness, humility, joy, and servant heart. They were afflicted men who embodied faith, love, and hope, like we talked about last week. And Paul, in the letter, tells us that these Thessalonians, those who accepted the good news, who would become the church, they too would become imitators of Paul and company. Now, imitation happens in all sorts of ways for those we follow, leaders and teachers. We, we pick up uh, cadences, rhythms, you know, how, how they say things, the words they say. And we'll, we'll get into more of that throughout this letter of how they would have imitated Paul. But Paul here is being incredibly specific about the imitation. Paul is saying that they became imitators and receiving the good news of Jesus in much affliction. And they did so in the joy of the Holy Spirit. As Paul and company had been persecuted, this new church would also face persecution. Why? Well, 
Thessalonica was a free city that experienced all sorts of benefits within the umbrella of the empire. They had a good relationship, a good standing with, with Rome. They enjoyed tax exemption status. They enjoyed civic respect in the region. All as long as Caesar was honored as the son of God and was the unquestioned king. Give allegiance to him, and it's going to go well for you. But then the gospel came. The power of the gospel turned Thessalonica right side up. These people now claim Jesus was the king, not Caesar. The gospel was their hope, not political power games. They no longer lived by the rules of the system that they once participated in. They had actually become the enemies of the Thessalonian good life. They became a threat. They became a threat. And we know what this world does to those who threaten our way of life, right? We wipe them out. We cancel them. Now, our text here uses the word affliction. This word in Greek is a fun word. It's very difficult to say. It's flipsis. So it's the T-H. Flipsis. And here's what flipsis means. A severe crushing pressure. A severe crushing pressure to be crushed beneath a great weight. It was the word used of crushing olives under a great millstone to get the oil out of the olive, to crush it to pieces. Flipsis. Affliction. It was the same word used to crush a grape, to, to break apart its skin so the juice would flow out so wine could be made. That was affliction. That grape was afflicted. Flipsis. The affliction, the persecution, was simply bound up into the very conversion of these Thessalonians. It was just part of it. Because the kingdom of heaven had entered into this world and the light was pushing back the darkness and the darkness was not wanting to go quietly. So the church, the people were pressed to conform to the power politics. They were squeezed by economic pressures. They were pushed on by social expectations, peer pressure, family pressure. They were pressed on by fear, the threat of physical harm, threat of death, complete loss of a way of life. Yet, they exhibited faith, hope, and love, just as Paul and Silas and Timothy exhibited faith, hope, and love with a spirit of joy. Paul's faithful witness made a lasting impression on them and formed a pattern for their lives. Now, Paul's theology, time and time again, and not just Paul's theology, but the theology of the gospel, the theology of scripture over and over and over again, shows us this. And it's something we don't like to hear. But it doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean that God isn't doing good things through it. But Paul's theology, the scripture tells this over and over and over again. Affliction and severe crushing pressure, suffering are an unavoidable dimension to the Christian life. That affliction, that suffering is the friction that comes from living right side up in a wrong way kind of world. There will be resistance. Now that said, let's look at how Paul and company's example is imitated and paid forward, so to speak. 
He says, so that you become an example, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and the kind. Well, Paul and company have been an example to the Thessalonians because of how they handled suffering and affliction with the spirit of joy. Now the Thessalonians were an example, their new way of life, how they embodied faith, love, and hope. Their new life was so different. It was so countercultural that the news spread throughout the region. It went up north to Macedonia and south to uh, the region of uh, Achaia. Um, it, it would be something like this. Paul said something like this. Uh, VCC, your uh, way of responding has been so incredible, so otherworldly, so Christ-honoring amidst this pain and affliction. That they have heard of your reputation. They have heard how you responded up in Mendocino County. They have heard down in Orange County how you have responded. And the gospel is being made known because of the way you are living. Well, Paul then goes on to tell of how their new way of living rippled out everywhere. So let's pick up at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. God has just brought salvation to these Thessalonians. They have now become an agent, an avenue of salvation. They have become those that the gospel is being spread through. They are drawn into the mission of God's redeeming, restoring efforts that is going all the way across this world. People are hearing the gospel through them, so much so that Paul says, we don't even need to go tell them, because the news has already reached them, because of the furnace that you're in, but the way that you're responding, people are seeing, and word is spreading. The regions around know something is going on with you. That's really cool. These words sounded forth. Um, the, the original, the, the Greek there, what, what it means is it's something rang out like a clear bell. It's also um, used for thunder, loud thunder reverberating across the landscape. He said, the way you love and live is like thunder that is heard miles away, and it can't be denied. This is how it ought to be with the church, shouldn't it? church is not a community of people who gather around um, a few leaders, a, a minister, and then watch them do the work. The church is a community, a family of apprentices of Jesus and the leaders, those who minister, like Paul and Silas and Timothy, are those who equip the people to do the work so that the thunder is heard because the entire community is living and loving like Christ. It's God's sovereign plan that that ministry, that that faithful witness happens often through and amidst affliction. So often, um, well, let me say it this way. We have lived in an aberration in history in the Western world where, where the church has, has been relatively comfortable and at ease. And we think that's the way it should be. And if you're faithful, then everything will be going well. Um, and, and there should be these huge markers uh, of success if you're faithful. But if you look back at the long span of history, this is an aberration that we've lived in in the West. Faithful churches experience affliction. People who are faithful to Christ experience persecution all the time, all over. 
that said, I want to, I want this to be put forward to the church family. Because if affliction hasn't come to you, if pressure hasn't come to you in some way, shape, or form, we guarantee it will. It's not if, it's just when. Don't waste your affliction. Don't waste your affliction. Affliction is an opportunity for authentic joy to be seen. Affliction is one of God's great venues for witness. Affliction is like that black velvet cloth that they put on the counter when you're buying jewels, right? They put the diamonds on there so that the light can spike off that diamond and you can see it in contrast and then you're just blown away by its beauty. Affliction functions like that. And people go, how in the world can you respond with such joy? It's because it's otherworldly. It's not worked up because of who we are or what we've done, but who he is and what he's done. Now, verse 9, we see that Paul knows that this gospel has gone out because he's hearing reports, right? He's getting emails and texts, right? Things are coming to him saying, hey, we heard the news and here's what we heard. So, verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, what have people heard about this down-to-earth model church? Well, first, they received the word that these wounded evangelists were received by these people in Thessalonica. They receive these black and blue bearers of the good news. That they trusted in the gospel and that they became followers of this Jesus and princesses of this Jesus. And they began, they began, began to live very, very differently. And then he goes on here and lists three different things. They turned from false gods. They turned from idols. They turned to serve the true and living God. And then they lived in light of this Lord Jesus' return, because he was alive and well, and he was coming back. By the way, um, this beautiful description echoes the faith, love, and hope that Paul talked about in the verses from last week. Turning from false gods and idols, that's concerning his faith. Turning to serve this true and living God with your life, that is love. And then living in light of the Lord's return, that is hope waiting for what you know is sure to come. See, when somebody follows Jesus, when they come to life by the power of His Spirit, they are saved from something. And they are saved to something. And they are saved for something. And it's important that we understand all three of those, because sometimes we might live in light of the fact that one of those, that's going to throw everything because if we are saved, we are saved from something, we are saved to something or someone, and we are saved for something. We are saved from something. We're saved from lies and, and deceptions and soul insanity, which is what the Bible calls sin. We are saved from false gods, cruel masters that can never deliver on their promises to bring us fulfillment and peace. We are saved from addictions of every kind. We are saved from sin-riddled conditions in our body and 
our mind. We are safe from false narratives about the world's destructive ideologies that are multiplying. If there's a pandemic going on, it's not just of COVID. It is of ideologies that are destructive and spreading at incredible rates. When one follows Christ, something is left. Something is behind them. And it should concern us a bit. It should make us think that if we are following Christ, claim to be following Christ, but we have not forsaken something, not forsaken a way in which we once lived, if we have not forsaken or turned our back on anything, that should just make us question. Because when we come to life in Christ, we die to the old self and die to the old way of being. Now, we're also saved to something, right? Or to someone. We're saved under the truth. Jesus is the truth way and the life. We are, we are saved to him. We are united to him. We are reconciled to our God, this true God who is creator and redeemer. We are saved to this one who is the judge we need because our hearts cry out for justice. We are saved to this one who is the savior we need because our sin calls out for mercy and, and forgiveness. We are saved to the son of God who took on flesh who went to the cross, died in our place, rose from the dead on the third day, ascended to heaven, sent his spirit, that we might become alive. Save us from the sin that, that we brought into this world, that we experienced, that we contributed to. And Paul even has passed Jesus this word that, again, is not a popular word, um, but he says it, wrath. Jesus has delivered us from the coming wrath. The final reckoning that, that will come someday. And how has he done that? By taking our judgment upon the cross. By substituting himself in our place. That he might give us his spirit. That we be washed, changed, made new. Given new life. Which means we are now saved for something. Here and now, not just in the future, not just heaven someday, right? Because through Jesus, heaven has broken open into earth and is on the move. So we are saved for something. We are saved for a new way of inhabiting this world. We are to live on earth as in heaven where God's will is done. A way of life consistent with union with him. Being with him, abiding with him, obeying what he says that we might become like him. And this means living in this very present moment, embodying faith, love, and hope by the power of his spirit. We are saved for whole life transformation, not just some theological knowledge and some creeds that we can shove into our memory banks and then use in some arguments. But a whole new way of living. This is what we've been calling apprenticeship, embodied loving trust in Jesus, empowered by his spirit, transforming us into his image. This means that our lives should be an imitation of Jesus Christ. He's an example, and by the power of his spirit, we live as he calls us to live. That means we should also put forward the idea that um, we should live in a way that we would want other people to imitate, right? And I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's weird to pray and long for something like this. Lord, would it be the case that we 
as, as VCC, as Valley Community Church, might tell other people, imitate us, follow us as we follow Christ. Now, <laughs> that might sound a little weird, right? Because it's really easy for a brain to go, that sounds a little cocky, right? To be honest, it's church, we're supposed to be honest, okay? That sounds really arrogant. Paul has been accused of being arrogant often, hasn't he? Arrogant Paul, <laughs> imitate me. This is really important to Paul. Like, he wrote this over and over and over again in, in different ways. I'm not, I'm not going to put them all up on the screen, but just, just listen to some of his words here, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. Here's what Paul says. He says, For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Uh, everywhere in every church, excuse me. That's bold. How about 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1? This is a good one. This is a key one. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3, 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Philippians 4, 9. Philippians 4 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And then from the letter of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Now, Paul, what are you getting on about? Are you being arrogant? Is this just like your driven personality? What is this? Because the key is what he says there in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul knows how apprenticeship works. He knows that one is united to their master, that they will abide with them and then to obey them. And, and by beholding them over time, they become like that other one. And so Paul isn't saying, guys, I am amazing. Imitate me. He's saying Jesus is amazing. Jesus is amazing. Imitate him. I am trying to follow him. Follow me as I, I follow him, not because I, I have it all figured out. I mean, Paul, Paul himself is the chief of sinners. Paul knew his track record. He knew his history. He knew he needed grace. He knew he needed help. He said, follow me. I'm trying to follow Jesus. Follow me because I am following Christ. You know, um, uh, sometimes I go hiking with with some friends here from the church. We'll take our families. We go with <laughs> our kids, you know, and grab some other people. And we got this whole troop of kids going. It's, just, it's like a little preschool. You know, all those kids going everywhere up these hills. And, and sometimes the trailblazer is way up there, right? And you're in the back. And you can't see where we're going because you can't see the trailblazer. So if I turn to somebody behind me and say, so you follow me while I follow him. Let me ask, is that arrogant? Follow me while I follow the leader so we get there together. That's an act of love. 
And that's what Paul is saying. Follow me while, while I follow this Jesus. Because Paul, Paul understood this foundational fact about reality. We become like what we behold. We go to where we look. We image what we give attention and affection to. It's like little kids. They, they pretend to be heroes, right? Blanket capes and cardboard swords. Why? Because they like them, so they want to be like them. This is why teenagers and, well, most of us tend to dress and talk the way we do, like those we admire, because we want to be like them. This is why it's totally scary to be a parent sometimes, right? Because your kids watch you and be saying and do the things that you do. Uh, a couple of years ago, when Silas was about five, um, something happened that stuck with me, and I know I've said it before, but bear with me. Um, I, when I when I process things, I just need to walk around to get the blood moving. So I was probably working on a sermon, mumbling to myself. I had my hands behind my back doing this kind of thing, and, and I hear something behind me, and I turn around, and it's this little five-year-old boy with his hand behind his back, mumbling, looking all like stern in the face. He's just repeating me, his dad, he loves imitation. There's nothing arrogant in saying, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Imitation is crucial to apprenticeship. And again, remember what Paul is focusing on here in this passage. What, what is being imitated? What's the focus? Responding humbly and lovingly in affliction, dying to self. Guys, Paul is not swaggering. I know we want to read him that way. He's not swaggering. It's a call to die to self, to follow this Savior who entered into death that we might live. Apprentices of Jesus do not strut. They dance with a limp. They sing in prison cells. They praise amidst pains of persecution. I love you, and I believe that this is important for us to learn that affliction is an essential aspect of apprenticeship to King Jesus. Earthly affliction releases the fragrance of supernatural joy, working to conform us to the image of our wounded Savior. And I believe we can learn this. Though the church for, for hundreds of years has been mostly comfortable, our times, the day and age in which we live, they're looking a lot more like the day and age in which the Thessalonians lived, aren't they? It seems that the 21st century will prove to be the closest century yet to the first century in its issues. And in this cultural moment when the church is more and more vilified, I don't care what stream you turn on, what news outlet you turn on, uh, the church is more and more vilified, the gospel more and more maligned, the Bible more and more disparaged as more and more people deconstruct their faith and the ex-evangelical movement is picking up steam. Christian morality is labeled as hate speech and bigotry. All that said, take heart, dear ones. The church is not dying. He's got it in his hands. The church is not dying. God is just making perfume for the world to smell, teaching us to dance with the limp. So let's not be surprised 
that whoopsis comes our way, that affliction comes our way. So as we move this to a close, let me read these incredible words by Peter, who knew well affliction. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, here's what Peter says about all these things that we're talking about. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You might imitate him. He committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that I will put before you as what the Thessalonians saw in Paul and Silas and Timothy when they limped into town, black and blue. Not bitter, angry, vindictive people, but people who had joy in their hearts. Jesus was a model for Paul. Paul a model for the Thessalonians, and the Thessalonians a model for Macedonia Micaiah, the widening ripple effect of faithful witness. So as we close, let me let me do this. Let me offer just a few brief distilling reflections here. First is simply this. Let's not hide our differences from the world. This doesn't mean we go out and try to offend. The gospel itself will be offensive to an upside-down kind of world. But let's recognize that the church brings the message and the presence of heaven into this world so light is encountering darkness and the darkness does not like it. Kingdoms are in collision. So let's not soft pedal differences between the church and the ways of the world. Let's not minimize the contrast. Let's not be ashamed of our right side way up of using power and money and sex, even though it is not popular in culture. Too often these differences, um, because we don't want to offend, um, because we are afraid of responses, afraid of um, negative responses, too often we hide these. But here's the deal. If you hide these truths, there's a chain that happens. You stifle affliction born of truth colliding with deception. And then you end up blunting, muffling, or muting witness to Jesus through that affliction in which the joy of the Spirit can be made known. So next, uh, let's let's re-see earthly affliction as an opportunity to display supernatural joy. And this is where we have to talk to ourselves when affliction and pressure comes our way. We need to talk to ourselves and others to help each other see that this is an opportunity the joy of the Lord to be released as a fragrance. Third, let's take stock. Who or what are you imitating? It's going to be a scary question. Um, who or what, honestly, are you imitating? And if you don't know how to answer that, one of the things I would uh, first say is then turn and analyze what you are giving your time and your attentions and your affections to. And that will show you what you are holding, and therefore what you are actually becoming like. Not what you say you're becoming like, but what you are actually becoming like. And then last, let's not strut. Let's not strut. Who has the right to strut? We're saved by grace. It's the level at the foot of the cross. We all have turned from some kind of idol by His, his grace. So there's, there's no room. There's no room to strut. Let's dance the limp invite others to follow as we follow Jesus.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would be willing to endure what you did, that we might have true life, that we might flourish. So Lord, help us to walk humbly, to dance with with joy, um, acknowledging our our bent, but knowing that we have resurrection life flowing through our veins. So we want to thank you for that. We, we, we're going to do that right now as we come to this table to celebrate, to give thanks for your your death and resurrection. Um, Lord, as we come to this table, if there's anybody in this place today who who has not had intimate communion with you, who's not trusted in you as Lord and Savior, but you've done something in their heart this morning, would this be an opportunity for them to profess their faith through coming to this table of grace? Lord, would it be so with them? And if that is you in, in this room today, um, would, you, would you speak with us afterwards? We'd love to get to know you and pray with you. So we, we thank you for this table. Amen.